I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, there's a difference between believing something and wanting it to be true. See, Donald Trump wanted it to be true that he won the 2020 election. And he wanted it to be true that Fox News had not called Arizona for Joe Biden. And he wanted it to be true that his hand-picked attorney general would come out publicly to say that there was widespread voter fraud that would ultimately overturn the election results. And he wanted it to be true that Rudy Giuliani's wild suggestion that he proclaimed victory before all the votes were even counted would not be challenged by his campaign manager or any of his advisors. A group we learned today was apparently on something called Team Normal. And he wanted it to be true that someone stole a second turn from him, not that he just lost the election. Now, these are things that he wanted to be true. But as I said, there's a difference between believing something and wanting it to be true. Now, the committee today set out to try to show the American electorate that Trump couldn't possibly have actually believed any of the things he wanted to be true. Not when advisor, after campaign manager, after campaign lawyer, after deputy attorney general, after attorney general, after secretaries of state, specifically told him that none of it was true and told him more than once and for months that the emperor had no clothes on. Now, testimony from some of the people closest to the ex-president that builds a case that Trump was well aware that he lost the election, but went ahead anyway with a sham to scam the American people. They walked us through who had Trump's ear on election night and beyond and who he turned a deaf ear to. And the mayor was definitely intoxicated. There were suggestions by, I believe it was Mayor Giuliani, to go and declare victory and say that we won it outright. It was far too early to be making any calls like that. Um, ballots, ballots were still being counted. I don't know that I had a, a firm view um, as to what he should say uh, in that circumstance. The results were still being counted. Did you ever share, Mr. Kushner, your view of Mr. Giuliani? Did you ever share your perspective about him with the president? Um, I, I guess, uh, yes. Tell me what you said. Basically not the approach I would take if I was you. But as you know, Trump did take the Giuliani approach against the advice of his son-in-law, though he seemed quite lucky to tell anyone that, and some other top advisors. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. But perhaps the most compelling witness of all today was Trump's former Attorney General, Bill Barr, expounding much further on his, quote, bullshit, unquote, assessment of what his boss at the time had been spewing. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull, was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit, which was complete nonsense. And it was being laid out there. And I told him that it was, that it was uh, crazy stuff. I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with, uh, with uh, he, he's become detached from reality. 
Hmm. But whether Trump was detached from reality or not, these election lies were allegedly attached to the bank account of many Trump supporters. The Trump campaign used these false claims of election fraud to raise hundreds of millions of dollars from supporters who were told their donations were for the legal fight in the courts. But the Trump campaign didn't use the money for that. The big lie was also a big ripoff. So not only is the committee accusing Trump of trying to dupe his base into believing that he was robbed of a second term in office, the panel is accusing his campaign of using those lies to swindle his own supporters out of money for his legal fight. Money that was allegedly not even allocated to that at all. The big ripoff, as Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren calls it. Now, right after the hearing, she told CNN that she thinks Trump and his family personally, personally benefited from some of those donations. We know that um, Guilfoyle, was paid uh, for the introduction she gave at the speech. I mean, on January 6th, she received compensation for that. But is that a, is that a crime? I'm not saying it's a crime, but I think it's a grift. $60,000 for two, two and a half minutes. Now, I'm a lawyer, so I don't do math unless I'm billing someone. But that's $400 a second that Guilfoyle was allegedly paid. So what will the accounting the committee seeks end up being. Let's be clear. Accountability for a congressional committee is not the same thing as a criminal prosecution. So what exactly is the committee's endgame here? She didn't even want to call it a crime. So is the endgame to lessen the division and maybe unify the electorate at least on one crucial point? That our elections are free and fair and that 2020 was no exception? Or is the end game perhaps to effectively disqualify Trump from a future run, at least in the mind of his supporters? Or maybe to persuade the DOJ to pick up where they've left off? I mean, after all, someone very important has been watching. I am uh, watching and I will be watching all the hearings. And I can assure you that uh, the January 6th prosecutors are watching all the hearings as well. Hmm. Or maybe... It's to secure the buy-in from both chambers of Congress to make new laws or even beef up existing laws where the Electoral College certification process is not vulnerable to a future power grab. And I mean by either party. I'm joined now by a member of the House Select Committee, Congressman Pete Aguilar. Congressman, thank you for being here tonight. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm asking about what the end game is. It seems quite clear that there's a lot of information coming out about the fact that the big lie was actually much larger in magnitude and scope than even people thought. But what is the end game for the committee? What is the legislative hook you want people to know? Well, our responsibility, our task and our job is to tell the truth and to find out what happened on January 6th and the lead up uh, to January 6th. Uh, That is our task and our responsibility. Uh, We will develop legislative uh, recommendations as a part of that. Uh, Changes uh, like you highlight, whether it's campaign finance uh, laws or the Electoral Count Act, uh, could be included as suggestions. Um, But our job right now is to tell the story specifically what happened on January 6th and what led up to it. 
And it's unfolding. And how, Congressman? I mean, the idea, one of the accusations, the notion of what's now gone from the big lie to the big ripoff, do you suggest that there has been a criminal offense here? Well, that's going to be for the Department of Justice to decide. Uh, our job is to, is to tell this story and to tell the truth. Uh, we've done an amazing job, uh, over a thousand interviews, uh, hundreds of thousands of documents, uh, and these public hearings will be the product uh, of all of that hard work. And so that's what we're focused on right now. Uh, to the extent that other uh, uh, federal agencies are watching and tuning in, as you showed, uh, the Attorney General say, uh, that's, that's positive, uh, that's good. Um, but uh, our task and our responsibility is to just singularly tell the truth. So the way you've gone about it, it almost has a documentary style. You're drawing from different videotape statements, also live testimony. It's obviously been broken down between different members of the committee. What do we expect to come next? We were told today the big cliffhanger essentially is bringing in the Eastman memo, the work that was done, attempts to try to corrupt the Department of Justice. What's next? Well, we're going to highlight the different pressure campaigns uh, that the former president uh, undertook uh, in order to accomplish his task, his goal. And his goal was to ensure that there was not a peaceful transfer of power. So he pressured uh, even his own vice president, we will tell that story, as well as uh, using his use of the Department of Justice uh, to try to meet his needs uh, to uh, uh, rerun elections and to uh, ensure that uh, they set aside um, uh, President Biden winning key contested states. Do you have concerns that by focusing on the former president um, that there will be this thought that the committee is trying to get a second bite at the apple of the second impeachment hearing? How do you convince people that this is not a partisan exercise, keeping in mind that the focus has largely and primarily been about Donald Trump? Because we use the multimedia and we tell the story through the eyes of those individuals who are around the former president. Uh, so this isn't just a committee saying things. Uh, this is individuals who were there, uh, whether it was rioters and insurrectionists or whether it was people working in the White House, corroborating exactly what we found. Uh, so we feel that that's clear and compelling. Uh, we feel that that will uh, capture the attention uh, of the American public. And based on the viewership of the first hearing, uh, we think it was a success. And so we plan to continue to roll out different aspects of that story. This is all about stitching together uh, different pieces of the puzzle uh, that tell the full and complete story. Will we hear from or about members of Congress, and I mean sitting members of Congress, who may have played a role? Yes, we, uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney uh, did talk uh, specifically about uh, pardons that were sought uh, by members of Congress. Uh, that, uh, those details will be contained within future hearings. Uh, the role of some of our colleagues here in Congress uh, to thwart democracy uh, and to try to stop a peaceful transfer of power uh, is definitely a thread that we will continue to talk about throughout these hearings. And we'll see where it leads. Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you so much. Thank you. Republican Senator Mitt Romney, who voted to convict Trump politically for inciting an insurrection, he said today that he didn't think the hearings have included any major revelations. Do my next guests agree? Why do you think and what do you think is yet to come from the committee? And do you think that any of these findings, everyone, is going to lead to that pulled thread he's talking about? I mean, we'll talk about that when CNN Tonight returns.
Team normal versus team crazy. Those were the two groups that former Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien says were advising Donald Trump in the days after the election. And apparently he wasn't alone in the assessment. One by one, a number of well-known Republicans testified before the January 6th panel today, having the same sentiment that Trump knowingly pushed election fraud lies, and he did so in large part for profit. I want to get some perspective from political insiders like Michelle Cottle and Casey Hunt and Scott Jennings. I'm glad that you're all here. I've got to know your reaction to what you heard today because we went from the headline of the big lie to now the big ripoff. Did that set well with you? Well, I I was stunned at the amount of money that Gilfoyle made for, for that speech. I'm sorry. I mean, don't you want to be paid $400 I a mean, second, Scott? I mean, I mean I gotta, the gotta, words coming out of your mouth right now. I got to renegotiate. Call the bosses. But that, but that is a startling thing. And I'll be honest, if I were like Donald Trump or, you know, around Donald Trump right now, my, my eyebrows would be raised. Like, who is profiting off of me? So that, that caught my attention Ooh. today. The other thing that caught my attention, though, was the fact that you had really credible people. Bill Stepien, who I know, professional, credible guy, the attorney general. Uh, you know, Jason Miller. I mean, all these people were saying, look, you know, we don't we don't know what's going to happen. They're still counting the votes or whatever. And he was venue shopping. It struck me as someone who has really spent their entire life being told yes by everybody they encounter and constructing a world of yes. And all of a sudden you have these political mm. people saying no, and he wouldn't accept it. Yeah. But the thing is, so all of them were up there today saying we're members of Team Normal, right? right? This is what Bill Stepien says. And had I evaluated Mr. Jennings here, who's a political operative, Bill Stepien, I've covered these people for my entire career. I would have said all of them were on Team Normal, that they were running normal campaigns against Democrats because they believed different things and thought the country should be run a different way. But (laughs) all of those people stayed until the very end. We spent four years covering this presidency where, I mean, think about what had happened before you get to the point where Bill Stepien finally says, I have to walk away, this is too much. And even when he does walk away, He doesn't do it in public. He doesn't tell anybody about it. I mean, General Milley had marched across Lafayette Square while protesters were being tear gassed. I mean, the number of things that happened and so many Republican members of, quote unquote, Team Normal justified it. Like, I'm sorry, they did. That's an important thing to remember is that Team Normal is also Team Chicken. Mm. They knew what was going on and they couldn't bring themselves to do anything about it to to stop what, you know, even Bill Barr said is doing a grave disservice to the country. The question is why? I mean, is it a political calc? Is it about self-preservation? They, could, uh, some, they were just going to break it out. thought that they also could maybe fix it, that uh, it was like a better plan to stay in the game yeah. and try to redirect it. Try, I mean, I had one very senior Republican tell me at the very beginning of, the, of Trump's term that they needed to be the ballast in the ship of state. And a lot of them stayed, and they tried. They tried very hard. But by the time we get to Election Day... They're still saying, oh, you got to give him a couple more weeks. you got to, like, just but let him talk fantasy. about the past. Remember, Bill Barr has said that he would still vote for Donald Trump. You have Bill Stepien, who I believe is working on a campaign of somebody who is against Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who is promoting foundationally very much what Trump, who's endorsed this candidate. So it's not too long in the past this has actually happened about who they once were. You say Team Chicken. This is not about what happened then. This is about where they're going with yeah. it forward. They're not willing to let this go to the degree that it's going to hurt the what they see as the party's way to cling to power in this degree. You know, they are willing to keep putting up with, if not actively advancing, this complete BS story that this election was stolen. But to, but to ask a 
Republican like Bill Barr, who has been a stalwart Republican his entire life, to put it to him and say, your choices are to abandon your entire political value system. I, I, don't, I don't personally think it's a fair question. He's already said he's going to support someone else in the 2024 primary. He's made it perfectly clear he doesn't think Donald Trump should be the nominee again. But you have to be- understand, Republicans deeply believe that what, and what Bill Barr has directly said is what a lot of us believe, that the progressive I you know, policy mindset is terrible for this country, and they're not interested but in electing it just because they don't like Donald Trump. At some point, you have to decide but, whether salvaging democracy is more important they than don't, your they don't political see it that the whole, way. But the whole point of these hearings is to show it's not saying the Republican way of governing the country is the wrong way. I mean, Liz Cheney is sitting up on the dais. She's one of the most conservative Republicans in the party. They're saying this man... This man criminally undermined our peaceful transfer of power. I think that's where people get stuck. But the question is always, well, then you must be ready to vote Democrat in 2024. Well, no, well, Bill Stepien or, or, or Bill but... Barr is it. No, we're going to cross that bridge when we come to it. But what I hear all these people saying is, incorrectly, let's get a different nominee. Let's do something different here. That's the first bridge we have and to cross, way, and it's the correct bridge. And the way to drive that home is to make clear that, no, you will not support the man who has been willing to burn down the system. If it's the, oh, well, I'd rather have somebody else, but if he makes it to be the nominee, yeah, I'll back him because these guys are so bad. That's no way to make it clear what you're standing up for. That's complete cowardice. And, you know, part of it is the interesting conversation about where we are in America right now. We have dealt with this notion at election time of the lesser of two evils phenomenon, right? We've seen it in successive presidential administration Mm -hmm. runs and campaigns. The idea of, is this where we are? That you either have to pick this person or that. Is there no one else? Well, by the way, the point you just raised, if you look at some of the opinion polls, like 80% of Americans don't want either Trump or Biden to run again. And that's, I mean... I'm there. So, I don't so want either right, of them so either. You're there. And so that's where most people are. And, and you have to believe, and it looks like even some Democrats are coming around to this, that maybe the two parties might go that way that I'm, most I'm people want. I'm willing to believe you that you say, like, you want to go somewhere else. But, like, what are you doing today to make sure Donald Trump's not the Republican nominee? What, what are you doing today? Like, what are you? I because mean, Mitch McConnell. Is, I mean, I, you're I, the universe in which you live. Yeah. There are things. I mean, my God, people are running for president already. Yeah. Ron DeSantis is running for president. Yeah, like, I got, I got like eight people that I would rather support. No, I get for that. President of the United but like, States. what are Republicans <laughs> who are in power doing right now? I mean, some of this. For the, I will say, I think it's interesting that McConnell has been relatively silent as these hearings have gone on. I mean, mm-hmm. he could have been much more vocal and critical of them the way some pro-Trump Republicans are. But, like, what are Republicans today doing to make sure... I mean, I don't care if it's... Well, you pick your nominee. Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, like, Tom Cotton. Well, there's a whole list Kevin of people. Kevin McCarthy is coming up with a separate investigation to try and discredit the whole thing. But the, people, so. but the people you just mentioned, by virtue of preparing to run, that's what they're doing. There's nothing to do to Donald Trump today politically, but there is something to do in 2024, and that somebody's got to beat him. Right. That's what, so, and, so, and people are so, and obviously how do you preparing enable that? to do that. How do you enable that? Oh, I think a lot of Republicans are going to support DeSantis or Pence or right, Tim Scott. But last time the whole field split, right? It yeah, was like and fragmentation is his best friend. Right. Fragmentation is, his, and we'll see if we get it, but you're, you're exactly right. Fragmentation is Donald Trump's best friend here. Well, speaking of fragmentation, it's going to break. <laughs> we'll fragment this fragment whole thing. We'll fragment this. We'll whack-a-mole a couple things. Stay with me. More to discuss ahead, everyone.
peacefully stopping a potential riot prompts death threats toward police officers. This weekend's Pride Parade in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, was the original target, according to the police. Now, a stranger called 911 after seeing uniformed men piling into a U-Haul vehicle. The 31 men arrested lived not only in Idaho, but nearly a dozen other states. <clears throat> They're believed to be associated with a white nationalist group known as Patriot Front. The town in northern Idaho, Coeur d'Alene, has a troublesome relationship with white supremacy, and it dates back to the 1970s. So I want to bring in Mayor Jim Hammond on the threat and how we confront it. Mayor, thank you for being here. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for letting me be a part of your program this evening. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'd love for you to hear your opinion and your thoughts. This is not the kind of thing one wants their town in the news for. It's quite disturbing for a variety of reasons. What was your reaction? Well, actually, I think that it turned out very well because these uh, young men came to create problems and uh, try to create a riot in our community. And instead, before they were even able to get out of the uh, U-Haul truck, they were arrested and stopped. So it showed that uh, we're a town that will not tolerate any kind of efforts to create harm or to spread any kind of hate or any kind of uh, discrimination toward others. Well, it was a case of see something, say something. You're absolutely right. But one of the big questions is why would they think to converge on your town? Any idea? I, th I think that uh, there's a possibility that they may think that a smaller town might be an easier target. Uh, it may be also that there was chatter on the internet about this uh, gathering uh, for gay pride. And uh, in a smaller town, they might have more of an opportunity to create problems than they might in a larger community. Now, tell me about the risk involved, because I know that it's a, it's a good thing that they were alerted to the authorities, but um, how big of a risk was it? Many of them were unarmed, but there was still a potential and really serious risk to the community, wasn't there? There was, in that they wanted to create trouble, and you can do that easily, even unarmed. But the uh, planning by our police department was what enabled them to react quickly, and with sufficient personnel to be able to deal with this problem. And in fact, even before this occurred, there were at least a couple other young men who were trying to create a problem. Uh, they were also from out of town, from the Portland area, and they were quickly arrested and taken care of. Have there been directives to the officers to try to prepare? For some, I, mean, I mean, we hear all across the country. You remember there was the DHS bulletin just last week. There have been conversations we've seen increasingly about people using their personal grievances to try to justify violence or be troublemakers and not the good kind of trouble. Are you seeing this as a microcosm in your own town that this is reflected now? This is an unusual occurrence for our community. And we, we get a lot of visitors used to be just in the summer. Now it's almost year-round because it's a beautiful place to come and to enjoy all that nature has to offer. So we're getting a lot of uh, tourists from around the country, particularly the Northwest, who come and enjoy it. And so it, it really doesn't provide a great environment for folks to come and create troubles. Have you had conversations with members of your community and people among your council about any concerns about the community feeling as though they are vulnerable 
or not as safe? Are you thinking about ways to ensure that your community sees this really as an aberration, but one that was corrected as you've spoken about? I, I think you've expressed it well. I don't think that there is fear in our community. The uh, police department, excuse me, the police department makes a, a great effort at providing statistics about all the activity within the community. And those statistics show that uh, Coeur is a very safe community in which to live or which to visit. And so with that in mind, this was an aberration and I don't expect anything like this to happen again. I want to play for you what their chief had to say, Chief White, on this issue, because it really is interesting to think about how police in particular were ones to be able to diffuse a particularly divisive issue. Let me play it for you. Of the 149 calls that we know of so far that have come in, uh, they're about 50-50 split, split between individuals in our community who are happy to, to give us their name and tell us uh, that they're they're proud of the work that we did and they're, they're happy to be a part of this community. And the other 50% who are completely anonymous and want nothing more than to scream and yell at us um, and um, use some really choice words, uh, offer death threats against myself and other members of the police department. The divisive issue being that they intervened. What do you make of this? Well, what I make of it is that uh, because I've received a lot of phone calls as well and emails, and but I'm noticing they're from all over the country. And so <clears throat> it's that the locals have told me and told the council that uh, they are very grateful to the police. They're great, very grateful that they did the proper planning prior to this event. And so that, that kind of thing is happening. But what's happening is <laughs> due to the Internet, People from all over the country are getting into the act here and want to be a part of it. They're weighing in. Mayor Jim Hammond, thank you for weighing in here on this program tonight. Thank you. Have a good evening. You too. Now, you hear about the bipartisan Senate deal that was reached on gun safety legislation? There was a framework announced that as of now would have the support of 10 Republicans needed to get it passed. Now, the key question is, can Democrats actually keep those 10 on board? That's next. Tonight, the top Republican involved in the Senate's gun talk says that he hopes to have a text on compromise gun reform by the end of this week. Actual words. Word of the bipartisan deal comes nearly three weeks since the Uvalde massacre. Now, the framework is arguably modest, yet significant. It incentivizes states to implement red flag laws. It includes new investments in mental health and school security. And it closes the so-called boyfriend loophole. And it forces a more thorough review process for gun buyers under the age of 21. And it also clarifies the definition of a federally licensed firearm dealer, which means that buyers from these dealers have to actually pass a federal background check. Now, Democrats, however, they won't be getting, let's just say, most of what they want or what they want most. No expanded background checks, no assault weapons ban, no raising the minimum age for buying weapons like the AR-15. That's exactly why the deal maybe has the backing of 10 Republican senators, enough to clear a Senate filibuster. But I wonder, will it stay that way? I've got our great legal 
well, legal and political minds. We have a legal mind. We've got great political minds. A great one. A great one. I, I didn't know how to put it. Back with me right now, Michelle Cottle, Casey Hunt, and Scott Jennings. I'm glad you're all back with me. And your minds are all superior. It's wonderful. Tell me what you make of this, because you've got 10 Republicans on board now. Will they stay that way? Look, it's always best to be nervous when you're moving from a framework to legislation, especially on gun issues, because this is so fundamental. It's not about policy. I mean, this has become one of those identifiers for which team you're on. That said, as you note, it is very modest and would be a great step forward if they can kind of fight through all the nitty gritty. Mm. Can we just ask Scott Jennings, like, are are Republicans going to be better off in the midterm elections if they actually show some backbone here? I mean... There's potentially that some question real wasn't risk. loaded at all. <laughs> no, like there's some risk. The public opinion on this is really changing, and there's some risk for Republicans to be seen doing nothing. Yeah, I, I think that this is one of those moments where the Rubik's Cube is like clicking in for both parties at the same time. The Republicans have said for years, well, this is a mental health crisis. We want to address that. Well, now we're doing it. And the Democrats, of course, need to show their people they can get anything done at all on this topic. So this is one of those rare moments where. All the little colored squares are going to line up and the Rubik's Cube is going to look great. I think these 10 will hold. And I think the universe, uh, I was up on the Hill today, talked to a few Republicans. I think the universe for this could be in the 20 range for Republicans. I don't know if they'll all go. But I, I'm thinking of it in terms of the infrastructure bill. Because, you know, I think it got close to 20 Republicans in the Senate. Look, I think if you're from a Western state, you're probably not voting for it. If you're in a primary, you're probably not. And if you're running for president, you're probably you're not. You're definitely not. <laughs> but, but that leaves a, a universe of around 20 that, yeah. that could get there. And that would be... A really nice win for everyone and politically good for both parties. I gotta say, it just strikes me. I would think that more would be willing to come out for the 21 lives lost than the 20 that went for infrastructure. That just to me, this seems always to me to be a political win to be able to react to this. They have compromises that are going on. Obviously, they didn't get everything they wanted. That's a sign of a good deal, right? And you've got people on board at the moment. I guess it feels different this time. 20 for a gun compromise would be a huge number. I think the floor is very, it's the floor right now. And look, people should judge our political system, you know, where they stand based on that reality. But the political reality is that 20 Republicans for a bill like this would be enormous. And, you know, one of the reasons why Democrats are willing to come to the table and accept something that's less than what they want, because... Let's be realistic. There have been times where Democrats maybe could have gotten a little bit more, but they said, look, we don't want to waste all of the momentum on something that's not good enough. So Mm. they've pulled back. Right. That's not happening now. If you listen to what Chris Murphy has to say, the point that he makes repeatedly is that if they're able to do this, if they're able to get across the finish line, especially if it's a big number where there is strength in numbers, you're not the only you're not the 60th vote. You're the 72nd or whatever. Mm. That's a lot easier to be in politically that that. They can actually do this and not be punished politically in a way that basically threatens their career. Right. Well, think about that. I mean, we're talking about 10, and one of them is closing the so-called boyfriend loophole, which with the Violence Against Women Act, the NRA was all over that. So really, are you saying that now that somehow the NRA is not the big bad wolf enough to to push back on it? They're going to put it to a test. They're going to put that to a test. They're going to test whether or not the NRA and the Gun Owners of America are going to be such a political threat that you're going to lose your political life 
if you vote for this. Exactly. And that's what Democrats and, are saying. And hey, it's, it's important it. to know that, I mean, the NRA says it's it's keeping its powder dry, so to speak, yeah. with the framework, and it'll come out when it has some legislation. But the gunners of America are already issuing, like, state alerts where people can go online and fill out the form so that you can tell, like the one I saw today, was so you can tell the North Carolina senators to stop doing the devil's work. So there's already some pushback on this. And it, there is no free ride on this issue for Republicans. They'll take some heat. Constituencies matter here. I mean, the more rural your constituency, the more or the less interested they are in this. If you have more suburban populations, if you have more, you know, purple areas in your state. There's a reason the senator from Pennsylvania has been a leader on this. Absolutely. But, but, you know, and so people, they have to be responsive to those constituencies. I think that's largely how you're going to see this thing fall down. But this is an outcome. I'm sort of for outcomes, Washington, you know, and this is an outcome. And I guess a lot of people are going to walk away from this saying it's a half a loaf or a quarter of a loaf, but it's, but it's not no loaf. it's more than we've done in 30 years. If they do it, it's more than we've done in 30 years on guns. I hear you all. I mean, I'm an optimist, but just as an observer and a member of the electorate, I just say to myself, is that, is that all we ask for? Just the, the bare minimum? Everyone stand by. Answer that question. That was rhetorical. Everyone stand by. <laughs> I want to talk about that very disturbing alleged riot plot against the Pride event in Idaho. And we just got word from Capitol Hill on that security bill to protect Supreme Court justices right back with new information. This just in, sources telling CNN that Speaker Nancy Pelosi told her leadership team that the House plans to pass a Senate bill to bolster security for Supreme Court justices. This would actually end a month-long standoff over with Republicans after Democrats sought to expand protections to clerks and other staff. The House plans to pass the bill tomorrow. I'm with Michelle Cottle, Casey Hunt, and Scott Jennings now. This is pretty big news. They had a huge compromise. They didn't get what they wanted, but they're going to have protection. It's about time because the, I mean, we already know the Department of Homeland Security is tracking all these threats Mm -hmm. against the Supreme Court building, the justices. I mean, somebody who wanted to assassinate Brett Kavanaugh went to his house, paced around for a half an hour the other night and had the means to do it. And so this was needed. It should have been done several days ago, but thank goodness they got there tonight. This has been a really emotional issue on Capitol Hill, too. I mean, there have been reports of very angry words exchanged between Steny Hoyer, who is the you know, number two Democrat in the House, who's usually a pretty even keel, and Republicans who've been frustrated with the pace of this, because there is, you know, there is potentially a political issue in terms of, you know, we're talking a lot about potentially the Democratic base, right? Nancy Pelosi's got progressives in her caucus who feel extremely strongly uh, about the Roe versus Wade decision. There are, I think I can, I, I know I can count on one hand the number of um, anti-abortion Democrats that are left in the House Democratic Caucus. So that's like some of what's going on. But the reality is political violence has been seeping into all corners of our system um, in this really troubling and terrifying way. And you know, I think there is an imperative to make sure that the people who are actually deciding to put themselves out there and serve in our public life are protected. Yeah, it's very important that this is bigger, to, to note that this is bigger than any particular issue. 
the idea that political violence is now seen as justifiable if you feel strongly enough about some issue is very troubling and is not going to serve either side well. I mean, it kind of spreads. You're already seeing Republicans reaping the whirlwind from Trump making this a, you know, kind of common idea that it's okay to, you know, hit stand somebody at a and stand rally by. or stand by. So, yeah. like, there are Republicans who've experienced death threats. It's, it's not any one particular team that this is an issue of, and it's not tied to any one particular policy. So it's very important to set a marker that says inappropriate. Even today, you heard one of the sound bites in the Hill, on the Hill hearing today where you had um, somebody who withdrew from the Capitol said, I'm not saying what we're doing is the right thing, but, you know, what else can we do if we feel this strongly about something? And that question, to me, felt like really the question that everyone's asking, the DHS must be asking. The bulletin talking about the notion of, well, isn't the way that you resolve personal grievance and you resolve disputes part of what it means to be in a democracy, in a republic? Isn't that how you lose what you cannot keep? I mean, this is... This is- the, the wages of a complete and total collapse of trust in institutions. When you believe that the institutions have failed you, when you believe that, you know, Washington has failed you, whatever, then you turn to extra institutional activity, such as storming the Capitol, such as plotting to kill a Supreme Court justice, such as going over to the congressional baseball game and shooting a congressman uh, uh, Scalise. I mean, you, you resort to these things because you feel like there's nothing else to believe in. And here's where the rubber hits the road. The politicians have to be careful with their phrasing because if you hear something like stand back and stand by, you see that as instructions. Or if you hear Chuck Schumer say, reap the whirlwind, Brett Kavanaugh. You'll, you don't know what forces you've unleashed. You'll pay for this. They take those as instructions. And so I think what you said is exactly right. This is corrosive. It's bad for the country and people. When my friend Eric Erickson in Georgia says, when you make politics your religion, this is what you do. Every person in the Congress needs to condemn this and stop it now. There's a poll I want to show you all right now. It's about what Republicans, Democrats, independents are feeling about the idea of what you do when there's anger towards the government. Let's show it. Here it is. They say that 40 percent of Republicans, 41 percent of independents, 23 percent of Democrats think that violence against the government is sometimes justified. Those are pretty big numbers. I mean, 40 percent, not just disagreement, but violence against the government. Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me because what we've been talking about is a stretch of time where people have been told again and again, the system's broken, there's been fraud, your vote doesn't matter, it's rigged, the establishment is out to get you, you cannot have an impact through the normal, peaceful, democratic channels. And so where does that leave you? You absolutely feel like there's nowhere to go except to take to the battlements, and it's insane. Yeah, well, and, you know, one of the things we didn't touch on this when we were talking about guns, but there's also been messaging around the Second Amendment that has said, like, you got to be ready to stand up against your government. And there's some of that that is very firmly rooted in what, you know, America, there's a reason we have a Second Amendment, and it's because of the way that the country was born and this Mm -hmm. idea that, like, if your government gets out of hand, like, you should have the right to do certain things. But doing it that way is the antithesis of, if, if the system is working, and, and I think this is what we have to be so careful to protect going forward. This is what is, when we talk about all the threats to democracy and things are on the line, right? A lot of that is, yes, corrupt politicians screwing around with the system, some of what we've heard in January 6th. But a lot of it's actually the populace in America buying into the idea that this is a government that represents all of us, that this is the way that we can solve our problems. And the rhetoric 
is getting outside of that. The trust of in, distrust of institutions is undermining that. And if we can't all be on that same page, we're in a lot of trouble. It's an interesting duality we have right now. We have higher political engagement than at any other time in 100 years, but we also have this high distrust in the government that that engagement creates. It's an interesting duality. We don't have the answers yet, but we need them. Interesting dynamic, but here we are on the backdrop of January 6th talking about people who've had a seed planted to not trust the very system that we're in. Michelle, Casey, and Scott, thank you so much. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with the great Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.